So John 11, starting at verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in, in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, do I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Evening, everyone. My name's Dan, and I'm a vicar in training, and it's a real privilege to be speaking tonight. In October 2017, I was in a Pizza Express in Richmond in London. And I was with, there with uh, my best friend and two of his brothers. 
And these are some of my best friends in the entire world. And the last time I'd seen them was at my own wedding in August 2017. It was a celebration. They, they, they were playing the music there. He was my best man as well. He gave the best speech, if I do say so myself. And they're some of the most reliable, steady, joy-filled, godly people that I, I know in my entire life. But this day, sitting opposite me, were um, three full-grown men weeping. A couple of days earlier, their dad had suddenly collapsed on a run of a heart attack and died. Mid-50s, beloved vicar, frequent marathon runner, the, all the signs pointed to a flourishing, long life. Cut short, unexpected, sudden, baffling death. And in that moment, with, my, with three of my best friends, going through the most traumatic pain anyone can go through, I felt completely helpless, confused, bewildered, and empty. If you've come here tonight from a wonderful weekend, I apologize. Because our passage today is undeniably heavy. It's a story filled with weeping, unexpected death, disappointment, and utter, bewildering, senseless confusion. And twice in our passage, there are 12 words that are said that has haunted human history forever. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, God? This accusation is the question behind, it drills right into one of the most pressing questions, theological and existential, of our Christian faith. If there is a God, if he is loving, if he is all-powerful and good, why is there suffering in the world? Why do we die? The problem of suffering, the problem of evil. But one layer underneath this problem is a problem called divine hiddenness. Maybe suffering would be okay if God was actually really obvious in those moments. But why does it seem that when we are going through some of the most senseless kinds of suffering, God seems the most absent? If you had been here. You know, this is the reason why some people lose their faith. This is the reason why people can't come to faith sometimes. This is the reason why sometimes individuals, communities, and even nations are thrown into an utter spiral of confusion. The apparent absence of God in the face of death and suffering. Physical death. The death of a dream. The death of a marriage. The death of a project you've put your heart and soul into the death of a national or international dream for a utopian future, suffering on unimaginable scales. So today, I want to speak about what Jesus has to say in the face of death and suffering. In a world of baffling confusion, what is the voice of Jesus? And I want to do it through the lens of the three siblings that Jesus confronts, or meets rather, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. I just want to set the scene first. So you have Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and they're friends of Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of John, we know that they've got history with him. And so at the start of John 11, just before our reading, Martha and Mary send a letter to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is ill. Come heal him. They appeal to Jesus' love for Lazarus. Come, Lord, heal him. We know you can do this. 
And I imagine there's lots of confusing emotions going on at that point in Mary and Martha, because uh, have you ever had one of those asymmetrical friendships where clearly they're more important to you than you are to them? And I imagine that kind of fear is rising in Mary and Martha. Jesus is now a big deal. He's, the, he's gone viral. He's the up-and-coming rabbi. He's gathering crowds of thousands and thousands of people. Surely he can't have time for us two women anymore. But we're your friends, Jesus. And so when he finally arrives at Bethany, where they live, Martha and Mary are heartbroken about Lazarus, but they're also heartbroken about Jesus. It even says in verse 19, many Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother, but not Jesus. He's late. And it's particularly brutal because actually, in, in, we read that it's, it's been four days since the body has been laid in the tomb. And in Jewish custom, there's a belief that the spirit of the corpse hovers over the body for about three days or so. If there was ever going to be a resurrection, it's going to be in those three days. But the fourth day was known as the day of no hope, the definitive end. And so Jesus shows up late on the day of no hope to a heartbroken pair of sisters. You let us down. And so we start with Martha. In verse 20, it says, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went out to meet him while Mary stayed at home. You know, different people react differently to grief, don't they? Some people are paralyzed by it. They can't do anything in the face of grief. But other people are the opposite. They like to be busy. They want to get things done or, you know, and, and just keep on the move. And I think Martha is more like the second. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've kind of shown this picture of Martha in which she's kind of uncomplicated. She's quite pragmatic. She likes getting things done in the background. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if anyone here has planned a funeral, you know that there's a lot to get done. So why not Martha? But sometimes it can also be a defense mechanism to not face up to reality, because maybe if you just stop for a moment and let reality come crashing down on you, that's over. Your emotions are overwhelmed. So Martha goes to Jesus, and then they have this little terse, short, tense dialogue. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now, God, that God will give you whatever you ask. And he replies, your brother will rise again. Cryptic. Then Martha replies, yes, I know. He will rise again on the last day of the resurrection. And this at first sounds like this extraordinary statement of faith. He's going to rise again. But actually, a few verses later, we read that Martha has no expectation that she's going to get Lazarus back. And she's the one who protests when, they, when Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled away. The body's going to stink. It's been four days, Jesus. Day of no hope. So I don't think this conversation is one that's filled with faith and hope. Instead, I think what's going on here is Martha is willing to swallow her hurt and be respectful to her rabbi, Jesus. But she's keeping a distance emotionally, I mean, and maybe even physically, standing at an arm's length. If it was a film, if I were to film this, I would kind of imagine long, awkward pauses between each sentence. It's polite on the surface, but underneath there's an ocean of accusation and hurt. You should have been here, Jesus. What do you have to say for yourself? 
And so when he engages Martha, she responds with an abstract theological answer, as if to shut down the conversation. And you know how some people can get prickly when they're hurting, like hedgehogs? You kind of try to get near them, but they're like, defenses up. And often the advice sometimes you get when you have people like that is just leave them alone. You'll get hurt if you go near them. You can't get through to them. And I certainly have done that in the past with people like that, to my own shame. But not our Lord Jesus. Jesus knows what Martha needs in this moment. And so he meets her in her defensiveness. And so we have this passionate response. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives in, by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? You know, this at first sounds like a callous response from Jesus, but actually I think it's a wonderful invitation to Martha. I want to make your abstract theology personal in me. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. And I don't think Jesus kind of proclaimed this in a loud voice to Martha. I more kind of imagine it as like, takes a few steps forward and kind of whispers as if to hug her, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. And whatever happened in that moment, it was enough to melt Martha's heart because she replies, yes, Lord, I, I do believe that you are the Messiah who has come into the world. You know, as people of faith, when suffering, evil, and death confronts us, sometimes we're forced to ask, do I really believe what I say I believe? And often it can be easier to trust in abstract principles and empty platitudes. Everything happens for a reason. The best is yet to come. I believe in life after death. It's easier to believe in principles and platitudes because they can't really let us down. But people can let us down. And when we feel like we've been let down by God, that can be catastrophic emotionally. But equally, principles and platitudes can't save us or comfort us either. Only people can. You know, when I'm in the depths of <laughs> pain, I don't look up inspirational quotes on the internet. I, I, I call a friend. In the face of confusion, suffering, and death, we can be forced to reassess and recalibrate how our faith looks like, to deepen it, and it's part of the spiritual journey. But the beautiful truth is that Jesus wants to move with you on that journey. You know, Mary, Martha's conversation with Jesus might have been like four short sentences, back and forth, back and forth. But this journey from faith to doubt, to defensiveness, to confrontation, and ultimately to renewed confidence, can take a far, far longer period of time, even years. But the promise is that Jesus extends the invitation to do the work with you. You can't offend him. He won't push you away. He will make the theology that you might be looking into personal in him. Then there's Mary. So when Martha's come out to meet Jesus, Mary stayed at home, and it's not hard to imagine why. She doesn't want to see Jesus. She's heartbroken. She's disappointed. So Martha goes back and tells Mary, the teacher is here, the rabbi's here, and he's asking for you. Isn't that beautiful, firstly? He's asking for you. He knows you're hiding in your pain. He knows you're you're, that you're distancing yourself from him, but he's asking for you. 
Jesus always makes the first move. And that's unbelievably beautiful, I think. So Mary quickly gets up to meet Jesus. But unlike Martha, who confronts Jesus face to face, Mary just collapses on the floor and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her words are the same as Martha's, the exact same 12 words. What's communicated is so different, isn't it? Because when Martha said it, it was an expression of defensive accusation. But when Mary says it, it's an expression of despairing agony. Where were you, Jesus? And at this point, the story really, really slows down. He doesn't answer because the people in the house come out at the commotion and they gather around the scene and they also start weeping. It's like tragic. But then what follows might be one of the most significant moments in human history. So Jesus sees Mary weeping. He sees the people weeping. And then he asks, where have you laid Lazarus? And they say, come and see. And imagine they take him to the tomb. And then it says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. Some of you might know that already. Two words, Jesus wept. And it's always struck me that this verse comes in this gospel. Because John's gospel is the one where we get the most epic depiction of Jesus. So unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't start with little baby Jesus in a manger. We start with the creation of the entire universe. Jesus is portrayed as the word made flesh. God become human. In John's gospel, we only get his most epic, mythical miracles. Water into wine, feeding of the 5,000, calming the storm and walking on it. One commentator describes Jesus in John as God striding over the face of the earth. He is at his most godlike, epic depiction. And yet, and yet, in the gospel with the highest, most exalted, God-like picture of Jesus Christ, we get this incredibly intimate, vulnerable moment of human compassion. And what does that tell us about God? Well, it tells us that his response to a world of suffering and pain is weeping. Even when God is at his, in his most godlike, he cares. This isn't a stoic God. This isn't a distant, unfeeling God. This is a God who loves his children more than his own majesty. And how many other gods do you know who would weep at your grave? You know, some myths often have gods crying for various things, but none weep out of compassion for humanity. You can search the entire pantheon of Roman, Greek, Norse gods, and you'll find none. You can search all the deities of Korean, Chinese, and Japanese culture, and you'll find no other god who would weep at your grave. Our present suffering is not met with indifference and silence. It is met with by a loving, feeling, and caring God. He knows our fragility. He knows our suffering. He understands. No other god cares like Jesus does. No other God understands our suffering as human beings like Jesus does. That's unbelievable. That's revolutionary in the history of religious thinking. 
And more than that, he doesn't just vicariously feel our suffering through the grief of Mary. Because as many of us know, he, he, he himself felt the full force of death on the cross. You know, there are many parallels between this story of Lazarus' death and the story of Jesus' own death. Because the next time Jesus weeps, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where he weeps tears of blood. The next time he is confronted by mourners, it's his own mother and the women and John at the foot of the cross. And when when he next confronts and faces up against death and a tomb, it's his own tomb. Jesus on the cross embraces and enters into the maximal human experience of senseless death. This is a God who is acquainted with our grief and pain, a God who puts his hat in the ring of history. And that's beautiful. Max Baker Hitch, a philosopher who goes to this church, he often says this, the misery of the world is so great, so great, that only a God who has experienced it for himself is worthy of worship. I think I agree. And the suffering of Jesus is also, does another significant thing as well. Because in a mysterious way, because Jesus suffered, because God suffered, because he wept, he made a way for suffering to become holy. Not good, because evil is always evil, but holy. Holy in the sense that somehow God is present in our suffering, even if he doesn't cause it. Because God, because God suffered, our suffering is no longer meaningless or senseless. That's incredible. And so it means that we're not only close to God when we are on the mountaintop moments, living our best life. Actually, in, in a really true way, there is a sense that we are closer to God when we are in the throes of suffering and when we are on the fringes of normal, healthy human existence, when we are confronted by the most senseless kinds of suffering and death. And that's one of the most unique things about the Christian faith. A God who cares, who understands, and who somehow makes a way to make suffering holy. Tom Holland, a historian um, in the UK, he wrote this uh, early in the pandemic when you know, there was a lot of fear about death. He wrote this, I've never met a Christian who claims to have understood and answered the problem of suffering and evil. Nonetheless, they still believe. They believe because they have discovered something so good and so compelling that it persuades them to believe anyway. And what is this goodness? That there is a God who cares. There is a God who will meet us where we are at, whether we are the stoic, it is what it is types or whether we are a heaping mess on the floor, he cares. Jesus wept. Okay, so at this point, there can be a temptation to stop here with Martha and Mary, a God who meets us where we are, a God who cares, a God who is acquainted with our suffering and is empathetic to it and understands And we want to stay with Jesus who comforts us. And we should. We should never skip over the experience of suffering. But Jesus doesn't remain with Martha 
and Mary. He, he, he proceeds onwards, finally, to Lazarus. So after he weeps, we get the response of the onlookers. There are two main groups of the various people around him. One group says, see how he loved him. And that's beautiful. See how much Jesus loved Lazarus. But then there's the other group who say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have made a difference? Couldn't he do something? He's Jesus, after all. And in a profound way, they're right. They are absolutely right. Because a God who cares but is powerless to respond to our suffering is not good news. That really isn't good news. Just because suffering can be made holy doesn't mean God likes it. Just because when we suffer, when we really, that, that somehow things can work together for our good doesn't make that suffering pleasant or good or even what God wants for us. Because when we suffer, when we really suffer and are confronted by kind of the fringes of what's like manageable, something inside us cries out, that's not right. That is not right. I remember holding my grandfather's ashes in South Korea. Um, we buried him in a forest under a tree um, where many of my ancestors are buried. And it was a beautiful moment. It was quite romantic. There was sun coming down from the trees. It was quite we were in nature. But he spent two years on a ventilator. He spent the last year not being able to speak. He couldn't come to my wedding. It's one of his lifelong dreams. That's not right. A healthy vicar in his mid-50s collapsing on a run. That's not right. Lazarus in a tomb. Again, that's not right. Do you feel it? I'm sure we have all these moments in our, in our own life. That's not right. And how do we deal with that feeling? I think one quite popular strategy nowadays is to romanticize suffering and death. You know, there's an author called Frank Tallis who wrote a book called The Act of Living. And the subtitle is um, What Great Psychologists Can Teach Us About Living Life. And it's a pretty good book. I really like it. It's got cool insights there, and I'm, I'm a sucker for these kind of slightly quasi-self-help books. But um, the last chapter is about suffering and death, and I couldn't disagree with it more profoundly. Because his argument is this. He says that we should embrace the transience of life like an old friend. Everything fades, but endings, endings are what make things beautiful. For example, musical symphonies are beautiful because they end. You, know, you get to the end and it's like, wow, it's the end. He writes this, the transience of beauty doesn't, doesn't make it less valuable. Quite the contrary, the very fact that beauty is transient makes it precious. In the same way, the brevity of life makes life precious. And that's quite romantic, isn't it? It's quite tempting. It's quite poetic, even. But the best lies are always beautiful. Otherwise, we wouldn't fall for them. Because here's the truth. It's not the brevity of human life that makes it valuable. What makes human life valuable is because God loves it. A symphony is not beautiful because it ends. It's beautiful because it lifts our eyes to something eternal. It reminds us that we are made for something more. The human race has a taste for eternity. And any true faith, any worthwhile religion or worldview needs to recognize that taste 
for eternity. And that's precisely what Jesus does in our story. Because on the day of no hope, on the fourth day, Jesus comes before Lazarus' tomb, asks the stone to be rolled away. He prays to his Father in heaven and says, come out, Lazarus. A dead man came out. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He says to death, let him go. He has power over death itself. And not long after, another gravestone is rolled away, but not by human hands, but by the power of God. And Jesus himself, who was crucified and killed three days later, rose from the dead, never to die again. He walks out of the grave, the living Christ. Jesus did not greet death like an old friend to be embraced. Jesus greeted death like an old enemy to be defeated. That's why in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15, St. Paul writes that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, we experience suffering now, and God can and he does redeem it. It can help us make, make us stronger. It can give us empathy. It can help us share in the suffering of Christ. But ultimately, death is an enemy of God. I was at my best friend's wedding two weeks ago, the one who lost his dad. Um, And it was incredible. It was beautiful. It was joyful. It was one of those weddings where clearly there was like a divine appointment of these two people before history began. Um, But but there was somebody missing. And yeah, that left a metallic bitter taste in the context of incredible joyful sweetness. So... We don't get to fully experience the victory now, but as St. Paul writes, we don't grieve as those without hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he won over grave once and for all, we know that we also will rise from the dead. Those who trust in Christ will rise from the dead. Not like Lazarus, who died again, but like Jesus, who will never die again. Again, we will hear with our own ears those same words from Jesus. Come out, take off your grave clothes. Let him go. Let her go. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. There's an atheist French philosopher called um, Luc Ferry. And he's, you know, he, he hates Christianity. He's a staunch atheist philosopher. Yet he admitted this. The Christian response to mortality is without a question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that offers a truly definitive victory. The only version. That's our faith. So in a world full of confusion and pain and senselessness. We have a God who knows our need. Martha needed the invitation of a personal God. Mary needed a vision of a suffering God. And Lazarus needed the voice of a powerful God. And we need those three things every day of our lives, every single week and every year. I'm going to pray to end now. 
And some of us here might have this profound fear of death. Um, it's inex- it could be inex- inexplicable even because maybe you're really young here and, you know, like I've got my entire life ahead of me. Why do I fear this so much? But it's the question of human existence. I certainly have struggled very, very deeply in my life with this fear of death. So if you're in the room, please do get prayer at the end. And as we come to the table of the Lord, you know, we are participating in the eternal life of Jesus right now. So as you come to take communion, um, bring it to God. Bring that fear to God. So let's pray. Jesus, you are the voice of confident eternal life in a world of senseless suffering and confusion. And we need you. And Father, you said that you came to overcome the fear of death. And thank you that you made it possible for us to walk through death into eternal life. Well, we know that in the world, some protest, some rage against the machine, some ignore it, some try to live for the moment. But we know that one thing is certain, that we all die. So Jesus, would you help us trust in you? Would you help us trust in your voice that will raise us on the last day to live for all eternity? In Jesus' name, amen.